I used to think that the top environmental problems were biodiversity, loss, ecosystem collapse, and climate change. I thought that 30 years of good science could address these problems. I was wrong. The top environmental problems are selfishness, greed, and apathy. And to deal with these, we need a cultural and spiritual transformation. And we scientists don't know how to do that. This is the Heath in Pursuit podcast with Heath Hollinsby. Each week, we'll have a conversation with various folks who are actively engaged in the pursuit of truth. This is a show where anything can be discussed, and probably will. A podcast for the seekers, the dreamers, the restless, the hurt, and the broken. This is a podcast for you. Welcome to Heath in Pursuit. Thank you, James, and welcome to another edition of Heath in Pursuit. I am Heath Hollinsby, and I will be the conductor of this conversation for the next hour or so. I am super excited about today's guest, Dr. Sandy Richter, uh, who's got her PhD from Harvard University. She wrote a book that was referred to me by Carmen Imes, who's also been on this podcast in the past as we talked about bearing God's name, why Sinai still matters. Uh, But she put a cover, like a copy of the cover of Sandra's new book, uh, that's Stewards of Eden. And the subtitle is what scripture says about the environment and why it matters. And so I said, hey, I'd love to to read this and have her on the show. And so I actually got the copy Monday, uh, read it Monday night and Tuesday morning said, let's schedule an interview as soon as possible because I really love this book and love what you have to say. And she said, hey, how about Friday? I said, yes. So for those of you who who are not super familiar with uh, Sandy Richter, she is uh, married to Stephen, who's also an academic. uh, And they have two daughters, Noelle and Elise. She's the Robert H. Gundry Professor of Biblical Studies at Westmont College in Santa Barbara. Uh, She has... Another book out called The Epic of Eden, a Christian entry into the Old Testament that I'm hoping to have her on for another podcast in the future to talk about. Uh, And that book actually resulted in a series of video curriculum that was born out of it. And so she is super smart. She's on the NIV Translation Committee. She speaks quite a bit around the world. She's in the academic world. She's done a lot of work on the intersection between the Bible and archaeology, economics and the biblical world. Uh, Deuteronomy and the Deuteronomistic history and name theology. And many people have said of her that her greatest gift is her ability to take the technical and complex aspects of the academic study, uh, of particularly the, the Old Testament, and be able to make them accessible and interesting to the layperson. And so I think you're going to see that that is a skill of hers as we get into this conversation. Uh, and I'm very excited because I think this is a topic that... Uh, people of faith have neglected for a very long time and need to be aware of. And so we're going to get into it. So Sandy, thank you so much for being on the show today. It is so great to be here, Heath. Thanks so much. I'm just kind of curious, like as somebody who lives in the Northwest, uh, the Pacific Uh Northwest, I greatly appreciate this book because environmental issues are so deeply connected to to my heart and to the heart of my family. We as a family are, are outdoorsy, environmental people. And this book really did resonate deeply with me. And it gave me hope for the restoration of all things, like the Eden restored, um, Hmm. which I long for, while also being really convicting to me about how I consume without concern. And we'll get to that in a couple minutes. But I'm just Mm -hmm. curious if you could share a bit about um, what caused you to want to write on this topic and what kept you going and finishing the monumental task of writing a book on something that piqued your interest? Hmm. Well, it's, it's, people ask me this question a lot. And honestly, my journey started a long time ago. And part of that journey was being raised in a military family 
we hmm. uh, a Navy family. So we would be transferred from coast to coast every two years. Okay. And there were a lot of kids. And so we would camp from coast to coast oh, wow. every year or so. In fact, I got to spend some of the funnest uh, months of my life living on the Puget Sound. Oh. Um, so you know what it's like up here. I do. Yeah. <laughs> I do. Back when Whidbey Island was all white-faced cattle and a couple of ferrymen. Wow. Because um, <clears throat> my dad was Navy. Yeah. So we spent a lot of time outside. I always heard the voice of God mm. through the whispering of the breeze in the leaves of the trees. Mm. Um, I loved, deeply loved um, the manifestation of what you and I would call general revelation, yep. you know, God revealing his character in the beauty of his creation. Mm. So that was built into me at a very young age. Okay. And then I became a Christian, tail end of the Jesus movement. And like a lot of people, I heard the message loud and clear, although I don't think it was ever specifically articulated okay. that, okay, that's nice that you love the creation. Mm. But it's time to forget about saving the whooping crane and start saving souls. Yeah. And so the message of environmental concern was shelved in my life for a long time. Hmm. And I went into ministry. I went into the academy, got my PhD. I specialize in Deuteronomy, oh. which is one of the major law codes coming out of our Old Testament. Yeah. And... As I did my work, I kept coming across over and over and over again the fact that God has legislated a love and concern for his creation. Hmm. And so as my faith matured and as my training matured, I just couldn't put this message aside any longer. Wow. And so when you open the book, you'll read that in 2005, I was teaching at Asbury Theological Seminary, which is one of our um, Wesleyan hubs in uh, our country and internationally as well. Sure. And I had a colleague who was willing to take the risk of engaging this message with me. Hmm. And her name is Christine Pohl. She's an ethics prof. Okay. And we launched uh, what in Asbury's history is called the Kingdom Conference, which is a conference designed to help our students engage globally. Okay. And we did environmentalism. Oh, wow. And so for the first time, 2005, I stood in a pulpit and I preached my first sermon on environmental stewardship. Wow. Which wasn't really being done that much at the time, right? Because there seems to be, I don't know why there is that disconnect between the church and and environmental, because they kind of, I could be off, but it seems like there's this, uh, no, we're we're stewards of it. We, we have control over things. We don't need to talk about environmentalism. Um, and so did you feel like an odd person out, like in that time delivering such a, such a strong message? Absolutely. And I didn't feel like an odd person out. I was an odd person out. Oh, interesting. Uh, it was it was risky, actually, and we're dealing with Lexington, Kentucky, too. Sure. This is not Portland or Seattle yeah. or um, uh, Vermont. Uh, you know, this is an area where, uh, for an array of reasons, we can talk about that if you like. I, I think um, often it's rural areas mm. that are, in many ways, slowest to see the concern, and part of the reason is because. 
their environment is not yet degraded. Yeah. You know, they're looking at green fields and Yeah, they haven't seen the forests. results of it yet. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. So it, it was uh, it was risky, and I was more than a little nervous. Hmm. Um, but I believed, and to my great joy, my community responded wow. with whole hearts. Hmm. And we went through, I'll, I tell the story in the book, we went through some very comical exchanges, uh, <laughs> such as the the faculty meeting where I stood up in front of all of my colleagues and took my water bottle and had turned it upside down and said, uh, gentlemen, because most of them were gentlemen, sure. you see these numbers, you see these numbers on the bottom of your bottle? <laughs> <laughs> uh, number one or number two says that we can recycle that in central Kentucky. <laughs> yeah. And, uh. Yeah, that is so wild. You know, uh, w- there's so many points in this book that I said were were convicting and just eye opening things I've never considered. Uh, and you propose this really fascinating concept of um, us and how we view our relationship with the earth as either landlords or renters. Mm-hmm. And you actually mm-hmm. tie in Israel's relationship as a model for this. Um, obviously, your extensive knowledge in the Old Testament is super beneficial to this idea. But I'm wondering if you mind unpacking kind of Israel's relationship and, and the landlord slash renter kind of uh, mm-hmm. topic. Yeah. Well, what I do in the book and what I did with my community at Asbury as well is uh, it kind of classic rhetoric. Mm. Uh, and maybe I, I should steer away even from that concept. But the idea that if you're going to speak to an audience, you, know, you need to speak their language. Yeah, absolutely. And the community of faith is an amazing uh an amazing powerhouse, as as we both know. Yeah. The church at its best has been the driving force behind most of the humanitarian efforts on this planet. Yep. You know, there's there's a reason that just about every hospital and orphanage on this planet has the word Baptist or Christian or salvation built into it. Yeah. So we, the community of faith, we have this amazing book which tells us our great story. But for years, we've, we've overlooked the fact that it is built, it's built on the concept that God is the great king and we are the underling nation. Hmm. And one way that um, biblical scholarship speaks of that, they speak of covenants okay. and of suzerains and vassals. And in many ways, that language is... Um, a bit anachronistic because it comes out of feudal Europe. But sure. if you know, if there are any seminarians or pastors listening to this, you've heard this language. And the idea that God is the great king and that Israel is his vassal, his hmm. underling nation. This is this is all over your Bible. That's why we have an Old Testament and a New Testament. It's actually sure. the old covenant, which is this old contract between God and humanity, and the new covenant, which is hmm. the new contract between God and humanity. Well, built into all of these relationships that the Bible has chosen as a model to communicate God to us is the idea of a land grant. And the great king gives his lesser nation a land grant. Hmm. This is what happens in Eden. God gives humanity a land grant. This is what happens again with Israel. He gives them a land grant. And it happens in the new covenant as well. It's just our land grant hmm. is now the new heavens 
and the new earth. Yeah. So if your audience has you know any background in covenant theology, uh, there should be bells going off everywhere. Sure. Well, if, if we were to distill this down into a modern paradigm, that's landlord and renter. Hmm. God owns this stuff and he has given it to us to use in our need. And that's the proverb that circulates throughout the book as well. Hmm. Uh, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. Yep. He has given it to us to use in our need, but not to abuse in our greed. Yes, and so you and I, as you know, people who have put down security deposits over the course of our lives, yep. we get this. Yeah. Yeah. You Absolutely. know, you, yeah, you rent a room, you rent an apartment, you put down a security deposit. If your landlord comes back in after your three years of habitation and finds that you've torn the walls off the closet, the doors <laughs> off the closet and put holes in the wall and, yep. and ironed on the carpet, you're dead meat. Absolutely. <laughs> yep. So uh, the, ar the argument in the book, and I substantiate it with tons of Old Testament examples, is that this is how God has always viewed his relationship with us and this planet He's given us this planet the way a landlord rents an apartment. Yeah. And he's given it to us graciously and generously. And he wants us to celebrate and enjoy. And, you know, as your family goes on its fun hikes and, and sailing adventures and all that sort of thing, this, this is his posture as a loving parent. Hmm. Enjoy this, but don't destroy this. For my master's program, we did an international trip, and we were in the uh, Chico rainforest of Colombia. Oh, my goodness. It was incredible. But what we noticed was the, the rainforest was really, or the, the rivers were brown and murky yeah. and disgusting. And mm -hmm. they were saying that 30, 40 years ago, it used to be crystal clear and swimmable. Mm -hmm. But what's happened mm -hmm. is you've had... Uh, they said a lot of Canadians uh, have come in mm. and built these these dredges that are searching for gold and have completely ruined the ecosystem. Uh, mm. And then a scientist there was actually talking about how if we could give the land a break, it would actually heal itself and the, mm -hmm. and the crystal clear waters would return. But what you're seeing is just economic destruction everywhere because of the greed of certain individuals who are illegally trashing the place. But governments are now in bed with them, and so there's there's money changing hands. And the people that are really losing out are those that are living on this river that that are now dealing with the ramifications of, of that abuse of the thing that we were created to enjoy and use for our need, but, but we're seen ex exploited by commercial greed. Mm -hmm. Yes, and unfortunately that's happening all over our planet, yeah. and we simply leave the ugly of a land exploited behind us and move on to fresh regions because we, you and I, yeah. are wealthy enough to do that. Whereas yeah. the widow and the orphan and the indigenous populations are not wealthy enough to do that. Yep. Uh, in the book, Norman Wiersba is a, a major voice on this coming from Duke Divinity School. He, he talks about the millennia of history hmm. of humanity doing just that. Um, Mesopotamia, of course, is the region where we anticipate the images of the Garden of Eden come from. Yeah. And if you look on the newsreels coming out of Mosul and Baghdad, 
um, you don't see the Garden of Eden no, anymore. No, not at all. No, no. And we can actually track that back to uh, overuse of the land, um, the salinity of the soil from over-irrigation. It goes back mm. to the law codes of Hammurabi. Oh, and geez. somehow or another, humanity is short-sighted enough that we just ignore the long-range impact of our behavior. Yeah. But of course, God does not. Hmm. No, you're absolutely right. Um, you know, another thing that you were talking about that was really fascinating to me um, is you suggest in the book this concept that speaks to being like a subsistence economy is defined mm-hmm. as an economy where everyone is barely making it and where surplus mm-hmm. is the anomaly. And I'm wondering mm-hmm. if you would mind unpacking this concept and maybe providing an example of how this uh, either plays out or has the potential to play out in an actual real life setting. Mm-hmm. Well, what I do, as as you know, is I, I use Israel as a case study. And uh, the chapter in the book is Israel and her landlord. Yeah. And the reason that's so helpful to us is because it offers us a picture of the people of God under Mm. a covenant legal structure where God is actually running their nation, and they're a landed people. They Mm. have land. They have animals. Um, Whereas, of course, in the New Covenant, uh, the kingdom of God no longer has political boundaries. But in the Old Testament, it did. So as we step into the nation of Israel, we find that the vast majority of that populace was living uh, with a subsistence level of existence. And as you've said, that means that their local economy was one that just got them through the year. Hmm. You know, these were uh, small farmers, small uh, rain-based farmers. So in other words, they Um, They don't use irrigation, so their use of their land is totally dependent on weather cycles, and they have smaller parcels of land, and they're raising everything they need with some um, local trade uh, built into it as well. But this this is Israel's life, and it's Israel's life while they're writing up their law codes. Hmm. So Deuteronomy, uh, Leviticus is written with this in the background. So as you start reading about laws like don't muzzle the ox while he threshes the grain, uh, I do a case study on uh, from zooarchaeology and Baruch Rosen and a bunch of data that's going to fly over the the average reader's head. But um, plugging it in to the case study, what it demonstrates is that when when the average farmer is asked to give up his first fruits, in an offering to the Almighty. When the average farmer is asked, don't muzzle your ox while he works his tail off, threshing your grain so that you can eat next winter. Mm -hmm. When you harvest your field, don't go back over it so that the widow and the orphan can come and go back over it and glean and support themselves. That that average Israelite farmer is hungry. He is looking, according to Baruch Rosen, one Israeli archaeologist, at a hungry season that probably lasted about 60 days. And the anthropologists out there, they most agricultural economies have something called a hungry season, Hmm. which is that period of time between when the last harvest begins to disappear from your barns and your storage facilities 
and the new harvest is not yet ready uh, to bring in. And in Israel, uh, we can estimate that in the Iron Age, and that's the monarchic period, that the average Israelite uh, village came up 15 million calories a year short, which when you crunch the numbers is about 60 days for the average family. Yeah, so they're not even living at, you know, give us this day our daily bread. They're going, I mean, (laughs) mean, that does actually kind of come into play when you think about it is is there's mm-hmm. a sense of we're not stockpiling like we see i mean i remember talking to a, a, a produce guy when i was living in tennessee and he was saying you know the apples and stuff they sit for sometimes from the time an apple's picked to a time it's on the shelves is like a year and they'll they'll go through they'll be gassed with certain gases that make them change certain colors and oh my goodness we just have these stockpiles of surplus even with the meat shortages and mm-hmm. in, in covid mm-hmm. People are saying, like, mm-hmm. it's going to take a while to hit because we've got so much stuff sitting in freezers. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just such a different contrast to these people who are still working every single day mm-hmm. extremely hard. But but no, we're going to be, you know, we're going to be in the red for two months, essentially, unless something mm-hmm. something happens. Yeah. And, and typically what they would do is they would simply ration their supplies hmm. uh, The idea of having so much that there was more than you could consume, the only days that happens in the average Israelite home is on the high holidays. And in Mm. fact, the only time these people typically eat meat is on the high holidays. And that is one reason that the fatted calf and... Um, the Passover celebration are are such days of great ce- of, of great joy because mm. there's more than enough to go around, and that's why uh, also you invite your extended family to all of these feasts because they didn't have refrigeration. Yeah, and if you're going to slaughter, uh, especially if you're going to slaughter the fatted calf, you know we're talking a couple hundred pounds of meat here. Yeah. Uh, you're going to have to bring everybody in to eat it and to celebrate and have joy um, wow. while they're doing it. Oh, that so is such th- a cool way of seeing it. I've never seen it like that before. I, I think it really helps us as we read through these passages yeah. to realize that the guys the guys and gals, because, of course, it's a, a large extended family sure. living under these conditions, they are practicing their these laws with a growling stomach. Yeah. And knowing that next year, nothing is promised. Yep. Nothing is promised. In fact, when I was interviewing one of my organic farmers for uh, some of the agricultural parts of this book, because, of course, I'm not a practicing farmer. Sure. Uh, so I interviewed a lot of farmers. Uh, and I was asking this uh, one uh, woman who is representative of a family farm, Central Kentucky. Uh, they are... Um, they do diversified agriculture. So they, they produce a lot of different types of crops, but they also raise sheep, which was interesting. And I asked her, talk to me about the law of the first fruits. You know, what's different about the first tomato (laughs) than, uh, than the 30th tomato that you get out of your vegetable patch. And she wasn't raised in any sort of church background. So she's pondering this and turning Hmm. it over in her mind. And she said, first fruits, huh? They, they ran a CSA, you know, where you buy into a local farm sure. and uh, you know what CSAs are. Yep. Okay. So uh, that's how I knew her. I was a member of her CSA. Oh, okay. She said, she said, well, first of all, that sounds like what we have to do with our customers. You know, that the best tomatoes go in the box. Uh, and uh, 
the beaten up ones stay on my table. She said, that's one huh. thing. But she said, the only other thing I can think is I have waited all year for that tomato and I have to give it away. She wow. said, and then the second thing I think is I have no guarantee that that tomato plant is going to keep producing. A cutworm could come in tomorrow yeah, and take that it. plant down. So the level of confidence, the level of faith that these people had to exercise, I find that very interesting as well. Yeah, that's actually really interesting because something I've never considered until you just said that was was the 400 years of silence uh, mm. at the end of the Old Testament, a longing, the firstborn. You know, there's mm. that, that hope, that longing. I wonder if there's some sort of connection maybe that mm. parallels that, of like longing for the, our trust is in after this long season of waiting that this is this mm. is the first fruit, you know, the firstborn of all creation. Well, and another thing just to throw in there, those 400 years of silence are also 400 years of uh, desperately trying to restore a devastated ecosystem. Huh. Uh, most most Christians stop listening to the Bible about the exile, and then there's that fuzzy period, and Jesus shows up, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> but the ex but the exile was when uh, Israel had been torn apart by warfare so many times hmm. that all of the major urban centers had been taken out. The orchards had been environmentally terrorized. The vineyards had been burned to the ground. The terracing system that kept the topsoil where it belonged on the sides of the slopes of their farms collapsed during the 70 years of exile. Wow. So when these people come back, they come back as a refugee population to a land that's barely able to support them, which is another interesting part of this. Yeah. And so when you read the prophecies of the great prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, there will always be uh, whole oracles committed to the idea that when the king returns, the land will flower again, oh, the wow. crops will produce again, which is this beautiful imagery. Yes. Um, yeah, built that into is our amazing. Bibles. amazing. I've never seen that. Yeah. You know, one thing you had me thinking of throughout the throughout the book, um, and even now again, is just the mindset of consumerism that is so rampant mm. in America. You know, a consumer culture facilitates our purchase of milk and meat and eggs. Mm -hmm. And you ask whether or not uh, we're responsible for how these products come to us and who and how the raw materials are collected. And I'm curious, as Christians, how can we break this consumer culture using a biblical lens that's not just focused on us getting the best product at the lowest price mm. all the time. Yeah, it's that's a real paradigm change, isn't it? Yeah. To try to it, it's almost like you have to grab your brain and 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 wrestle it another direction. Yeah. And I, I do think that if Jeremiah lived and breathed in 21st century America, he would be walking down Main Street shouting about consumerism. Hmm. And it's really hard for us to see. And I, I, I kind of want to reassure your, um, your listeners yeah. that, um, <laughs> uh, quoting some of my, um, my opponents in the past, I am, I am not wearing tie dye right now. Um, <laughs> okay. I, the only thing pierced on my body are my earlobes. Yeah, okay. I, yeah. do, I don't have a single tat yet. Just letting you know. Okay? Yeah. Is the key. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I do think the prophet Jeremiah would be shouting at this cultural mindset huh. that just 
permeates our lives as Americans. And we never ask the question, where did this stuff come from? Yep. Where did it come from? Who was abused to get this on my table? Who was defaulted for me to get a bargain price on this? We don't think about it. And it takes it takes some mind shifting to get there. In fact, you've read the book. You know that I use a fairly painful illustration oh, yeah. to get the readers to think. I'm, I'm interested to hear what you thought about that illustration. Do you... Is that the one that you started off the uh, the chapter with the quote from the author, and then it, and then you used it yes. later on? Yeah, yeah. I, I remember the the low the lowest common bidder when it comes to not just a commodity of of food or clothing, but it actually came to, uh, to yeah, the sex workers and and people trying to get the lowest price for that. And mm-hmm. and the way you set it up in the book was really fascinating because you know. I love that you actually used it out of context it, to open up the chapter. Um, Thank you. And then because you didn't see it coming, and as soon as you as soon as you laid it out, it was just heartbreaking. And it was on the heels. I had actually just seen um, a documentary on Walmart's purchasing system, the supply system, and they mm. were interviewing farmers who said, essentially we'll come in and a Walmart representative comes in and says, Hey, you've grown all these crops. Here's what we'll, we'll take your crop, but this is what you're, you're, we'll pay you for it. And so the, so the farmer doesn't even get to dictate what it cost to, to do fair business. And I thought, yeah. man, we're consuming this, not understanding who it's hurting. But then when you actually put mm-hmm. it into the perspective of women that were image bearers of God being mm-hmm. commoditized to the lowest common price for the pleasures of, a, of another human, it was just sickening, just yeah. sickening. Yeah. And that was the impact uh, that the present the presentation I quote have on me. The, the young scholar is Myrto Theokarus, and she works in Greece. Um, and her opening quote is, what is dangerous about the consumer identity is that a consumer will rarely ask questions about the supply chain leading up to the transaction. Hmm. That's how she starts off. And of course, we can think about that with Walmart and how they're purchasing meat. We sure. can we can actually think about it, and I'd love if we have time to talk about it, to talk about the um, current slaughter industry yep. and our current meat crisis because of COVID. Hmm. So when she starts off with that, we're all thinking, oh, yeah, you know, did I buy it from Wayfair or did I buy it from Ethan Allen? Yeah. You know, did I did I buy it from Whole Foods or did I buy it from Walmart? Yeah. But uh, she goes on to apply this consumer mindset, as you've stated, to the brothels in Athens mm. and the fact that the consumers that she is busy confronting are people who are trying to get the biggest bang for their buck as well. Yeah. And all of a sudden, um, again, my brain, almost like almost like a car that has automatic steering yeah. when you're trying to turn the wheel when the car is off. It's like, wait, Impossible, let me go that yeah. way. Uh. Yeah. So we as Americans have been trained all of our lives, all of our lives to be frugal, to be bargain hunters. Yep. Uh, by the way, Europeans are incredibly offended by the fact that America, an American will walk into a shop and walk straight for the sale rack. Huh. Um, they, they just find it incredibly uh, disrespectful and rude uh, because they don't think that yeah. way. But yeah, we yeah. do. It's part of our culture. 
And um, there are benefits to that part of our culture, but the the moral issue is not thinking about the supply chain. Yep. And one of the things that will be illustrated in this book as well is the collapse of the family farm in America. Hmm. Uh, Wisconsin, for example, when I was a child, you could drive through Wisconsin, you could stop every 10 miles and visit a local dairy. Oh, wow. And typically they'd have a little farm stand and you could pick up some freshly made cheese or um, ice cream or the setting or the thing and actually meet the farmer. Hmm. Well, you can't do that in Wisconsin anymore because there, I, it's not that there are no local farmers, but the percentage is so tiny sure. in, in response. We are starving out our farmers in this country. Whereas, again, in the European Union, they take care of their farmers. Sure. You can live a respectable middle class lifestyle yeah, as, a farmer. Yeah. Yeah, as a responsible farmer. And we're not doing that. And so there's a very painful chapter in the book about industrial agriculture, both its effect on the land and what I find absolutely nauseating is its impact on livestock. Yep. You know, I would say that your book... In- is so convicting to me that um, I will tell you today I have products arriving. I, I changed the way we buy certain products immediately. So the first one was uh, hand soap. I found an organization where they they sell a glass bottle and uh, it's this little droplet that you put in water. Um, the packaging is all cardboard, so it's all recyclable. They don't even hmm. they don't even use glue to seal the cardboard because that would make it non-recyclable. So they've figured out a way to... And you just drop a capsule in and it you use your hand soap and it pumps out as foam and it's like $2 for a bottle. Uh, and so I've done that. I also switched this week oh to... Uh, we've always gone to Costco and got the you know family of six. We got the Tide um, laundry detergent and I found an organization uh-huh. that... Same thing. They, they package these little dissolvable strips of... Uh, organic ingredients that you just throw a strip in your di- in your in your washing machine and you're not using any plastic it's all you know all the packaging is recyclable and so you've actually done a great job and there's a convicting element that has actually forced me into action even this week since reading the book to go <laughs> we're going to get better at this because it is important and one thing that this is my this is my goal to make you feel incredibly guilty and change your lifestyle <laughs> nothing like a little gospel <laughs> shame to get me to, to move you know <laughs> but you, uh, i think the thing that's so frustrating though and uh, living in the south for so long and then moving here mm-hmm. because i remember before i moved here people were like you got to watch out the liberals the hippies the the mm-hmm. tree huggers um, but I knew many people there that, you know, because their God gave them authority over the land, they'd have their Ford F-350s. Uh, mm-hmm. And a lot of people who believe that the stewardship of an earth uh, is going to be dis- is useless because the earth's ultimately going to be destroyed. It's pointless. Right. And I believe right. that the mindset of like escapism or we're just going to have to mm-hmm. get through things until we get to heaven because this whole place is going to burn anyway mm-hmm. is an incredibly inaccurate reading of the original text. And I'm kind of curious if you would agree with that and maybe what words you would have for people who maintain this system that, you know, use use the resources because we're all on our way out of here anyway. Mm-hmm. No, I, I agree with you. This is a major mindset and I address that in chapter seven um, yep. and it's a biblical number. So, you know, it's got to be good. <laughs> uh, but yeah, this actually is... Um, well, let me let me launch by saying that the crime of abusing the earth is global. It is mm. not just a Christian problem. Uh, okay. We 
we all find an excuse or uh, a religious imprimatur to do whatever it is we want to do. Um, okay. This is what sin is, right? Yeah. But in the Christian community, one of the theological errors that leads to this is exactly what you said, this idea that it's all going to burn anyway. Yeah. And so kind of like my early discipleship, we need to get out there and save souls, not raccoons, yeah, you know? Exactly. Um, but because uh, it's only souls that are going to endure into the kingdom. And so uh, chapter seven of the book kind of does a reworking of most people's view of the eschaton, of mm. the end of all things. And the end of all things, which is heralded throughout your Bible, and of course, it is the great hope that helps us to endure the current agonies of a fallen world. That great hope is actually the resurrection of this planet. Yeah. And when I teach my uh, incoming seminarians or my freshmen at, at Westmont College that uh, God's ultimate goal is actually to resurrect this planet, that salvation is not just about fire insurance for the individual believer. Sure. Their minds are blown. Yep. And I love watching their minds get blown. Yeah. And all of a sudden, folks realize, oh my gosh, this is all over the Bible. Yeah. And so we get to Romans chapter 8, where Paul, who definitely wasn't wearing tie-dye, starts talking... <laughs> about the resurrection of the community of faith, mm -hmm. he talks about the fact that for you and I, our ultimate greatest hope is that moment when our salvation is finally secured, that moment when the freedom of the glory of the children of God is going to be revealed to all creation. Yeah. Uh, this this moment when the first fruits of the spirit that is within us, groaning within us, finally explodes into our adoption of sons as sons, the redemption of our body. And I'm quoting from Romans chapter eight, verses 18 through 25. Paul yeah. puts right next to us, right next to that passage, that the anxious longing of the creation is that it is waiting eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God as well. Yep. And I'm going to keep reading. For the creation was subjected to futility, in other words, frustration, not of mm. its own will, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. In other words, our man Paul is putting the resurrection of this planet right next to the resurrection of the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve, because our ultimate promise is a new heavens and a new earth. And when he speaks of that new heavens and a new earth, he's not talking about explode one and, yep. um, you know, wave a magic wand and there's a new one. He's mm. talking about resurrection, resurrecting this very planet, washing oh. it clean of all of its ills and diseases, which have been sub it's been subjected to because of us. Yeah, yeah so exactly. So that it can live again. Yeah. You know, I was reminded of the first time I, I was actually presented this um, alternative to escapism theology was uh, a comment I read by Francis Schaeffer, um, mm. who uses the word spoiled as he describes the world that we see right now. And he says, it's kind of like a can of milk, a bottle of milk in the fridge that's gone sour. Um, mm. It looks like milk and there's remnants of like, we know it's milk. Mm. It's just not what it was intended to be. 
Uh, it smells funny. You can't drink it. You'll get sick. But it, it looks like milk. It's in the milk bottle. It kind of smells like milk. Um, and he was describing that in the way that, like, what we're seeing now is the spoiled mm. side of yes. what's yet to be restored. And that eventually the Eden restored is coming. We'll get back yes. to what intended, what was intended to happen in Eden. And that's our future. We're not running off somewhere. We're going to, no. we're going to be here and it's going to, we're going to enjoy the beaches and we'll still see this, you know, like we'll see sunsets and we'll see the beauty and the trees. And like you were talking about at the beginning, the wind whipping through the, the leaves and the rustle mm-hmm. and actually all that stuff that's that's in our eternity. That's part of our future. We're not a yes. bunch of souls floating around singing our whole eternity, you know? Yes, yes. Yeah. No, we are animate creatures, and we are creatures. And I talk about this a lot in uh, my other book, The Epic of Eden, uh, that the dismantling of this ideal ecosystem actually is what Genesis chapter 1 is talking about, mm. and that it is the restoring of that ideal seven-day creation as detailed in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, actually, that that's the goal of creation, that God's first plan was, hey, big surprise, a perfect plan. Exactly. And so all of the story of redemption is about getting Adam and Eve back into the garden. That's what this is all about. And I tell my students as well, and I love watching the expressions on their faces, that the fact that you and I, when we're standing on the edge of the ocean at sunset, hmm. and all of the condos are behind us, and we we can't see anything but the beauty of God's creation, and we feel the wind on our faces, and something inside us responds. Yeah. I I believe with every fiber of my being that that something inside you that responds is the image of God stamped on his creation. Hmm. We are made in the image of God. And when we see that sunset or we have the privilege of, of holding a wild animal in our hands or we get up at the crack of dawn and have that perfect cup of coffee as the wind whistles through the leaves. What's responding in us is the image of God. We remember Eden deep in our souls Mm. and we long for it. And what we're longing for is the resurrection of this planet. Absolutely. Yeah. What you didn't ask me about are those passages that seem to speak of the destruction of this planet. Do you want to talk about those? Go for it. Go for it. Okay, so um, 2 Peter 3 is one of them. Um, It talks about how the Lord will come like a thief and the heavens and the earth will pass away. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, um, while they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come suddenly. Uh, Revelation 6 is another. Uh, He broke the sixth seal, and uh, as a result, the whole moon became blood, the stars, the sky fell, um, et cetera, et cetera. So we've been educated on these passages, and especially as evangelicals, yep. because these passages were championed and post uh, premillennialism was championed uh, during uh, the great revivals of, um, of the 19th century. Hmm. Um, so we read these passages and we go, well, there it is. Uh, the earth is going to burn up. Uh, the heavens and the earth are going to be rolled up like a scroll. It's all going to burn anyway. Uh, what I do in the book is I help 
educate us that those images and that language are actually coming from a concept in the Old Testament called the Yom Yahweh, which is Hebrew for the day of the Lord, okay. which in the New Testament becomes the second coming because it's all the mm. same event. Uh, yeah. The day of Yahweh in the Old Testament, the second coming of Christ in the New Testament is the day when the landlord comes back to check his property. Hmm. So we our, our lease is up. And as I'll tell my students over and over again, God has looked down from heaven and has said, okay, that's it. Yeah. Uh, I can't take this anymore. It's kind of, it's just like the flood. Uh, the, the thoughts of humanity were only evil continually. Not hmm. one more soul is going to get into heaven. It's we're done. And God calls it and he stands up from his throne and he sends the heir to lead the great army and heaven, um, his dimension re-enters our dimension and uh, the rider on the white horse appears in, in the heavens and says, okay, that's it. Gig is up. That wow. moment is a moment of great judgment and a moment of great mercy. And hmm. we fear the judgment and we should. Yeah. But we also long for the day of mercy when Amen. the last the the last pedophile gets his due. The last Khmer Rouge is called on the carpet. The last starving child in the refugee camps um, is is rescued. And mm. that moment is the moment that is heralded by those passages and those images are images that come out of uh, the genre of uh, apocalyptic literature. And, you know, that, those are all highbrow sounding words, but they're symbols. Sure. And they're symbols that have a lexicon. And mm. the symbols speak of judgment. They don't speak of planetary annihilation. Not if Paul uh, knew what he was talking about. Yeah. You know, uh, one of the things that you're sharing there that I was thinking about was, and we'll talk here in a minute about kind of us and the animals and stuff, but you you mentioned even the meat crisis with COVID. Uh, and, mm -hmm. and I was really heartbroken as I read about the way that animals um, have been treated by for-profit conglomerates. Um, we were talking about the chickens living on something that's smaller than the size of a piece of paper. Uh -huh. um, and even though, you know, uh, there's a profit and there might be a purpose in mass, you know, in the masses to feeding masses of the way of, of doing kind of supply chain differently. I'm really disgusted at how the dignity of life is so cheaply regarded, uh, mm -hmm. not just in humans, but in animals. And we have to find ways to do it better. And something mm -hmm. that blew me away was when you were discussing that even Levitical law had respect and dignity mm -hmm. for the animals that would have been sacrificed. And I'm curious if maybe you could share uh, either a couple of the, the stories from the book uh, or from your own life that you've heard mm -hmm. about how animals are being treated and maybe provide us alternatives to what organizations like Tyson Meats and some of those are doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, the first time I was exposed to these realities was when I read a book by Matthew Scully, who is a big name in Washington. He's mm -hmm. a, um, a a journalist, a speechwriter, has worked for several of our uh, presidential administrations. So he's no lightweight. Sure. Um, he wrote a book called Dominion, huh. um, The Power of Man, The Suffering of Animals, and A Call to Mercy. And wow. even the title makes me tear up. Yeah, absolutely. I read, I read the book over the course of several weeks. I, I couldn't put it down, okay. but I couldn't pick it up. 
either hmm. because I would sit, I can still see myself sitting in my office um, at Asbury Theological and I would go between such levels of nausea that I couldn't eat hmm. and tears literally streaming down my face reading this book oh. and very thoroughly documented. Um, this is this is not um, this is not simply activist literature. Sure. And he's the one who first documented these realities for me, and that launched me into my own research. Um, pick it up if you get a chance. I just bought it as you're talking. I just bought it. <laughs> oh, good job. <laughs> <laughs> what he documents is that basically between the Green Revolution. Um, which happened in the early 1980s, really. Um, so the birth of industrial agriculture to today, that our uh, agricultural system in our country and now permeating our planet has moved from a family farmer model to a CEO corporation model. Hmm. And the result is that animals in particular have been transformed from animate creatures that produce a product that humanity needs, that being milk or eggs or meat, sure. to protein units housed on, in factories that produce protein units. Hmm. And so farming has been completely transformed. Now, the industry doesn't want you to know this, so when you pick up your half gallon of milk at the grocery store or your, you know, styrofoam and cellophane wrapped package of chicken breasts, sure. you will see pictures of happy animals on farms. Well, 95% of the meat that you and I pick up in any grocery store in this country, <laughs> that animal has never stepped foot outside, never stepped foot oh outside. Gosh. Uh, Are you suggesting the, that maybe even like even the the whole foods and stuff as well? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Now whole foods works hard sure. to find other supply chains, but 95% and it's an old statistic at this point, so I'm sure it's higher at this point. Sure. Um of the meat that you have access to uh has never stepped foot outside. Now bovines, mm. that's cattle, they're sure. outside because they're too big to keep inside. Yep. But they are in massive food lots, uh, and there are pictures of them in the book. It it would take oh, yeah. a really quick global uh, Google search um, to get a look at what I'm talking about. We drove past one of these um, last year in one of our excursions to Northern California. You could mm. smell it um, probably 50 miles away. Oh my uh, goodness. where the bovine are just, they're just packed into these feedlots. But chickens, pigs, it is inhumane, meaning yeah. not human. It is not human. Um, I talk in the book about how pigs are probably the most uh, lucrative industry in our country. Yep. Our factory farmed uh, pigs live in such... Uh, grotesque conditions that again as you read about these conditions you're just going to be sickened and of course it is the job of these industries to keep this information from us well and, and even you were saying in the book like you know mm -hmm. i remember the story of, of the female in utah that was 
harassed by police for taking pictures on public mm-hmm. property because there's actually lobbying groups that are creating laws that don't let you see behind this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're called ag-gag rules, and yep. uh, they're state-level legislature, but a lot of the um, agricultural states in our country have these laws. And this young woman, a famous case, uh, stopped on the side of the road. She's on public property. She pulled out her cell phone uh, just to film a slaughter uh, uh, facility that was right across the road, open to view. And within seven minutes, there were uh, a half dozen police cars surrounding her, confiscating mm. her phone and arresting her for violating uh, these ag-gag rules. Um, mm. So we were talking about pigs in particular. Yep. And uh, in our country, uh, it is legal to confine uh, pigs throughout their entire lives. In fact, that is normative for the industry. And so things like gestation crates, which Mm. are seven foot by 22 inch metal crates, where uh, these animals, uh, these would be sows, a 500 pound animal, spend their entire lives. Incredibly intelligent animals too. Yes, yes. and so they are, they are tortured and um, self-destructive as a result. They are um, chewing themselves and destroying themselves as a result. Um, then they're transferred to farrowing crates where for the first time in their lives, they're actually allowed to lay down. Um, they produce their litter and 21 days later, their pigs are, piglets are forcibly weaned and they start the system all over again. Um, just this past year, I was actually in London. I was giving the Lang lectures at the London School of Theology and they asked me to speak on environmentalism. They, this you know, fairly average crowd of Brits sure. sitting in front of me at this public lecture, you, you could hear them. And these are Brits, remember, very... Yeah conservative people gasping mm. that Americans still do this. Oh yeah. They, they outlawed this type of farming decades ago, mm. but um, Smithson meat, Tyson um, chicken, uh, just to, to go back to your original question, you, you asked how can the average American bypass this kind of industrial farming Honestly, it's very difficult to yeah. bypass it because, uh, for example, uh, Tyson owns almost the entire industry from mm. start to finish. Um, I name in the book that there are actually 40 companies, yep. 40 companies that own almost all of the farm chickens in our country. And so they control everything from the hatcheries to the feed mills, to the slaughterhouses, to the processing plants. And they might sell their brand under an array of subsidiary titles, but they stand behind the industry. So what do we do as Americans? First of all, we need to get informed and we need to speak up. And we can vote with our pocketbooks. We can start becoming informed consumers. We can read the label. Uh, like mm. the whole business about cage-free eggs, a lot yeah. of people have no idea what that's about. And that's about battery cages where uh, the standard egg-laying hen spends her entire life in a cage that is, as I say in the book, smaller than the size of a piece of notebook paper. Yes. They will never stretch their wings. They will never peck at the ground. They will never walk in their entire lives. They so will simply crazy. sit in this cage 
until they produce all the eggs that their body can produce. And then they'll be thrown into a grinder and their bodies will be fed to some other creature. Yeah, and I remember too in the book you were talking about uh, about how with the pigs, like the confinement is actually boiled down to an exact science. They're putting 20... 230 pound animals in 7.5 foot square pens like yeah i mean just it's it's crazy and i i've even tried since i read this book even like i said i read this book earlier this week trying to find local farms and stuff that i mean we're i even looked at if you look at my google search history it's like you know farm uh, you know chicken uh, chicken runs and chicken stuff. Cause I was like, maybe I'll keep my own and, and try to find mm-hmm. ways to do this better. Mm-hmm. But you're right. Mm-hmm. It's such a massive industry that mm-hmm. it's, it's going to take a large voice. Pro- it will. And it's being protected at every possible level. Sure. But we have a wonderful history as libertarian kind of Americans of changing this sort of thing. Once we become informed. Um, and again, I, I have a whole list at the end of the book of how then should we live and ways to, as a regular everyday consumer, start taking steps to bypass these systems and start voting with our checkbooks and Mm. start voting with our actual democratic vote to start changing these systems. And I have great hope that we can, because again, I see in the European Union that they have changed it. So why can't we? Yeah. Um, One thing that we can do, which is, you know, takes a little more commitment. I don't know if you've been able to hear in the background during our podcast that uh, Greta, Mags, and Lucy, who live in my backyard, have been- I love it. Produced- I was wondering what the noise was, but I was like, it's a live animal. And if it's a live animal, then she is not a hypocrite. And I love this. No. And I'm not going to edit no. it out. <laughs> no, they're back there. And oh. um, in, you know, Southern California, you can do this legally in the suburbs. And uh, I keep just a few because they're noisy little critters, but yeah. um, they're happy as clams and they have enriched our lives tremendously. And guys, three hens uh, keep my family of four uh, able to give away eggs on a regular basis. So, awesome. and it's fun. So you can try it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to, yeah. do, I'm doing it. I'm going to, uh, my okay. neighbors might hate me, but I'll do it. You know, one other thing yeah. that we were talking about as mm-hmm. we get back to people is, um, you mentioned that what most of us don't realize is that this environmental degradation actually strikes those people on the margins first. Yes. Uh, and yes, I'm curious it does. what you mean by that, and maybe an example or two for those who are kind of skeptical about this comment, because it's hard to see that from a place of privilege. Yeah. So let me say from the get go that the widow and the orphan are major characters throughout our Bibles. And we know that yep. as Christians. And we. Almost every one of your listeners has probably invested or is currently investing in caring for the widow and the orphan somewhere in their world, right? Mm-hmm. They've, they've either picked up um, an investment in an organization, um, you know, World Vision or Save the Children, or they're, they've made the immense commitment of fostering. Who knows what they're sure. doing, but we do it. What we don't realize is that, especially outside our country, the widow and the orphan get hit by environmental degradation first. And one of the reasons, and it's detailed in the book by people who are better experts than I, is that the resources that are abused in environmental degradation are seen as um, as, as resources that aren't owned by anyone in particular, So when we move into the rainforest and start um, 
uh, mining in an irresponsible fashion or ripping down whole forests in the topsoil is loosened and floods into the river and suffocates the aquatic life. And uh, as, as you were telling early in our podcast, it's the um, folks who are living as subsistence farmers or gatherers on the edge of that river that are going to be starved out. Yeah. And as they're starved out, they're going to be forced into the urban centers, hmm. forced in the urban centers because their local farms and gathering and fisheries no longer feed their families. When they're forced into the urban centers, their extended families are broken down and uh, they can't maintain the integrity of their family unit. Sure. And it is a very short path from that moment to sex trafficking and puppy piles in the alleys that's um, underage homeless children who are living in gangs because they've lost their parents um, to starvation, etc. cetera. Uh, one of the new industries that I will highlight in the book is actually environmental missions. And there's a young couple that I have tremendous respect for, Neil and Danielle Karlstrom, who five, seven years ago went to Madagascar. And they went to Madagascar as environmental missionaries. Hmm. And what they have done in Madagascar for years is he as a botanist and she as a midwife, okay. he, in the name of Jesus, is teaching the locals how to grow the indigenous trees that have been stripped from the Madagascar waterways. Hmm. Uh, Madagascar, by the way, is now 90% deforested. Oh my God. Pause over that statistic. And of course, Madagascar has some of the most unique flora and fauna on this planet. Oh, yeah. So, of course, the locals are starving. So, he teaches them to plant indigenous trees in their backyards. Hmm. So, on their little patches of a backyard garden, they produce trees that the UN buys from them. So now we have micro industry. Yeah. They are able to support their families, which means they're able to buy enough food to keep their wives from starving to death during um, prenatal and birth and nursing, which is where Danielle comes in. Hmm. Trained as a midwife in our country, she helps circumvent the current statistic of one out of every 10 women dying in childbirth oh, in Madagascar, wow. in a modern world, one out of That's every 10 crazy. women. Yeah. yeah. And they're dying because of nutrition. That's why they're dying. That's they are totally underweight. Avoidable. Their children are underweight. Yeah. And so they're slowly restoring Madagascar in the name of Jesus. And Plant With Purpose is a huge organization out there that's doing the same all over this planet and gaining traction. Um, in the book, I interview um, a guy named Matt Ayers, who's been the president of Emmaus Seminary down at Haiti for the last 10 years. Same story. Forced urban relocation that destroys families, starves out children, and produces sex trafficking. Where does it start? It starts with environmental degradation. Yeah. Who would have thought? Isn't that amazing? And I'm curious, you know, what, one thing that I think this ties in really well to something that you just kind of hovered on earlier, but it was also in the book, was was why the church has lost focus on this. You know, the, yeah. there's this idea that the church senses that converting souls is kind of the only task of the Christian. And as a result, 
any other task, such as environmental stewardship, mm -hmm. is a, a distraction from the most essential aspect of our calling. And I'm, and right. I'm curious, like when you're, as I listen to what you're saying, I go, how can you not see this tied into mm -hmm. the Great Commission and to the actual mm -hmm. restoration of all things? Where do we get off focus? Where's like, yeah. where's the church been in our letting this environmental focus slip out of our hands? And mm -hmm. it seems like there's some pretty significant ramifications of us kind of throwing up our hands and prioritizing this converting of souls over anything that has to do with the, the world we live right. in. Right. Um, I name, I name three issues that I think have distracted the church on this topic. Uh, the first one I identify as the political debate in mm -hmm. American politics. And guys, this, this is, our story as Americans. Yep. Again, uh, the Brits are the the current guys running for prime minister are fighting over who can have the greenest platform right now. Sure. So they do not have the polarization on this issue that we do. But because we have polarization, you and I have been raised in a Christian community that has attempted to stand up for pro-life issues on every possible front. Yep. And those pro-life issues, uh, be they foster care or abortion or uh, euthanasia, uh, all of these issues tend to fall into the Republican wheelhouse. Right. For, and whether or not that's true is a whole other set of questions. But that is their stated platform. Whereas the Democratic Party tends to be acquainted, at least in Christian evangelical circles, with being pro-choice and anti-family and an array of other things that may or may not be true. Sure. And so we've been raised with this posture that if you're going to be a Christian, you got to be a Republican. Yep. And uh, as a result, environmental stewardship, because it has been a part of the Democratic platform, has become guilty by association. Hmm. Uh, as one of the facilities managers at Asbury Theological called me back in 2005, only hippie do-gooders would be committed to the Democratic Party, and therefore only uh, anyone who has environmental concern must be a hippie do-gooder, right? Yeah. <laughs> and the argument that I make in the book, and I, I will keep making it loud and long, is that I, yes, I'm an American, and I'm proud to be an American, but I am first and foremost a citizen of the kingdom of God. Yep. And the kingdom of God has its own set of running rules. Yeah. And I will do my best to be a good citizen of my home country, but ultimately I'm a citizen of another kingdom. And I, those are the politics I need to listen to. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, I know you're not lying too, because when I, like I told you, when I was living in Tennessee, I remember having, there was a certain individual that sat me down before I moved that said, look, you're about to get eaten by the wolves. You're moving to a liberal area. They're going to try mm -hmm. to control your mind. And I don't know how you can be a Christian and be a Democrat. Uh, and I got here and I've had a conversation with many people that are like, I don't know how you can be yep. a Christian and a Republican. It's so polarizing, but I love that your yep. emphasis is on even focusing on those two sides of the coin is just, I mean, it's adventures of missing the point because we are citizens mm -hmm. of a different kingdom. And so mm -hmm. uh, we're fortunate to live here. But man, how dis how disgusting it is that we we tend to think that souls is the only important thing and that to actually, mm -hmm. you know, uh, not only that the care for creation is 
um, unnecessary at best, but it's actually politicized at worst. It, it's mm-hmm. just so disgusting to me because mm-hmm. how can you hate mm-hmm. the very thing that our God has created and how can you turn a deaf ear in the name of politics to people on the margins, people downstream yes. that are yes. that are image bearers of the divine being treated the way they are because of our uh, our quest for Selfish. greed and need. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's amazing. One one of the case studies that I do in the book uh, strikes a little closer to home and closer to Tennessee as well. Okay. Uh, and that is mountaintop removal coal mining which oh, yeah. has taken over uh, Eastern Kentucky and West Virginia. And this is a classic example of the abuse of the widow and the orphan in the name of uh, free enterprise. Yeah. And as you will read in the book, and it, again, a quick Google search will show you as well, mountaintop removal coal mining isn't good for anyone. Uh, it destroys the locals. It poisons the locals. It um, absolutely, irreparably annihilates their patrimony, meaning their native land, and wipes out water systems. And mm. yet it is tolerated because of profit. Yep. And there's story after story in the book of people in our country being poisoned and starved and um, aggressively uh, silenced in their quest to defend themselves by industry. Hmm. And we are either ignorant or we are intentionally deaf and don't raise a hand as a result. One of the One of the stories comes from a fellow who runs an organization called Christians for the Mountains. And I had actually interviewed him when I was teaching at Wheaton College. Uh, Kristen Page and I, a biology prof there, co-taught a course on environmentalism Hmm. and the Christian. And we called it the Bible in biology. And we pulled him in on a Skype Zoom interview and interviewed him. And one of my very... Um, heartfelt, well-educated young students said to him, what is the church doing in Eastern Kentucky? What is the church doing in West Virginia to protect the widow and the orphan from this rape and pillage of the the coal industry? And long pause, long pause. And he went on to say, the church is doing very little. And the reason the church is doing very little, and he actually compared it to the civil rights movement, he said the average pastor is stuck in this position where sitting on the front pew is an executive out of the Monsanto, right? Uh, An executive out of one of the coal industries and uh, a local guy driving a truck for the coal industry who's feeding his family. And then right next to him is the father of a family whose kids are all being treated for leukemia because Mm. of the poisoning of the groundwater. And that local pastor is afraid to stir the pot. Jeez. Yeah. That's so, that's so heartbreaking. Yeah. But like, like we've talked about, there's so many people on the fringes that feel the effects of this. And, uh, you know, I've got just a couple questions left. You know, one of my one of my favorite concepts that you present in the book is the idea of the widow and orphan and how a kinsman's responsibility was to care for the relative 
and how that was directly proportional to the proximity of the bloodline between family members. Mm-hmm. Um, and you would you even presented that the closer the relative, the higher the level of legal and economic responsibility. And you go mm-hmm. on to suggest that Israel understood that their land and its produce ultimately belonged to Yahweh, and that one of their responsibilities mm-hmm. as land stewards was to manage the fruit of the land in such a way that the needs of the marginalized were met. And so the farmer was expected to reserve a portion of his harvest for the widow and the orphan and the resident alien of his village. And mm-hmm. I'm, I'm wondering if you could use kind of your vast knowledge of, of the Old Testament to set up what the system looked like. And maybe what we could mm-hmm. learn from this system today, like, is there a way to to take some of the the concept of this and apply it to where we live in 2020 now? Yes. Uh, so the first chapter of this other book that I've referenced, The Epic of Eden, uh, actually uh, uh, plunges the reader into this cross-cultural experience. And really, when you step into both the Old and the New Testament, you are stepping into somebody else's culture And just like for you as a West Coast kind of guy to be dropped into Tennessee, you had some cross-cultural experiences. And then to be taken back to the Pacific Northwest, I'm sure you kind of had whiplash all over again. Uh, (laughs) I did. Yeah. When, When we step into the Bible, we're stepping into what an anthropologist would call a traditional culture. And perhaps an easier term to access is tribal culture. So a tribal culture, a traditional culture, is one in which the the family is the crux, the absolute center of the society. Hmm. And we as Americans, we of course celebrate and value our families very highly, but our families are not our link to the economic or the legal system. You know, when you and I start looking for a job, we don't simply step back into the family business because most of us don't have a family business, nor do we step back into the family farm because most of us don't have a family farm anymore. Uh, Rather, we go and get an education and we write up a resume and we depend on the bureaucratic structures of our society to help connect us to the economic system. And so with the legal system, you know, it's not going to be our uncle who's going to pull us out of our souped up 1968 Mustang because we've been ripping down a side street at 75 miles an hour and slap us across the side of the head. Uh, It's going to be a police officer in a uniform in a car marked as a representative of the state that's going to give us a ticket that we pay to the state. Okay, that's a bureaucratic culture. Tribal culture is a whole other gig. And that's what uh, the Bible is. So what you're speaking of is this extended family structure, this kinship circle that is native to Israelite society, which makes the legal systems and the economic systems uh, completely structured by the family. Hmm. And therefore, when it comes to someone in the kinship circle either getting in legal trouble or getting in economic trouble. It's the responsibility of the closest of kin to step in and to either discipline or rescue Hmm. their kinsmen. And that's what's going on on the Bible. And this is why when uh, Naomi realizes that her husband and her two sons are both are all dead and she is living in Moab, the first thing she does is pack up and move back 
to her village because when she gets back to Bethlehem, she can anticipate that a kinsman in the village will recognize his responsibility to take her into the family system. So this is what's going on in your Old Testament. It's, it's again, a, a real paradigm shift for us to realize there is no welfare. There are no SNAPs. There are no food stamps. There's no subsidized housing. There's no unemployment. There's no disability. All of those things have to be covered by a family member. And that family member's responsibility is always going to be defined by how closely they are related. And uh, gender is going to play a huge part in this as well. Jeez. It's such a different way of viewing things. Such a different Mm -hmm. way. Okay, last question, because I want to honor your time as well. Um, Mm. And we talked about that, you know, stewardship of this planet isn't a Republican versus Democrat conversation. It's not the NRA versus Planned Parenthood or liberal versus conservative. Um, But you kind of suggest, like, what does it look like to be a Christ follower in a fallen world? And you say that of all the voices and of all the facts that are calling for our allegiance in the many arenas of environmental thought, for the citizen and the kingdom of God, the voice of scripture must surpass them all. And I'm kind of curious, as we begin to close, what would be your plea for those who claim to follow Jesus in regard to how we can become better and do a better job caring for the environment and for the marginalized, and maybe some next steps that you would suggest for us? Mm -hmm. I think the first word I would have is that environmental concern has largely been hijacked by voices that don't necessarily support a Christian worldview. I think that's absolutely true. Hmm. And as so many issues on our planet, the church has been so slow to respond that we've allowed this issue to be hijacked. Yeah. I actually taught a continuing ed um, seminar for a bunch of clergy uh, down in Mississippi. Okay. Now, you know, pulling your cross-cultural perspective. And the title of my weekend seminar for them was uh, environmental concern and expression of contemporary holiness. Hmm. And they responded in spades. Um, So glory to God on that one. So I do think there are a lot of voices out there. And we need to be careful uh, as to which voices we actually listen to. And the reason that I wrote this book was to provide the Bible-honoring Christian a short, accessible biblical theology of environmental Mm -hmm. concern. I started writing this while I was at Wheaton College. I finished writing it at Westmont College. My goal is that my 18, 19, 20-year-olds can read this book and realize, hey, your Bible speaks to this issue. Own it. And two, for them to be able to go home and hand it to their parents and say, mom, dad, this isn't just, you know, a radical liberal agenda. And then for those parents to be actually able to hand it off to the grandparents and say, guys, it's in the Bible. So mm. that would be the first thing I would say. Okay. And then the second thing I would say is that we, as Christians, citizens of another kingdom, we know that it is our job to stand in the gap. We've mm. known it since the, the moment the, the stone rolled back from the empty tomb. Mm. It is our job as the redeemed of God's creation to stand up and represent a different way to live. We are new creatures and we are looking forward to a new creation. And we are supposed to stand as the representative of our God in this fallen world. Yeah. 
And that involves standing up for the widow and the orphan. It involves standing up uh, against a corrupt society. It also involves standing up for this creation that belongs to our God. Hmm. And so if, if you don't mind, I'd like to read you this quotation that I use to open up the conclusion of the book. Sure. And the quotation is coming from a guy named Gus Speth. He, uh, at retirement, was the chairman of the Council on Environmental Quality um, and worked under Jimmy Carter and under more current administrations as well. A Mm. real bigwig in the environmental movement. And this is what he has to say. I used to think that the top environmental problems were biodiversity, loss, ecosystem collapse, and climate change. I thought that 30 years of good science could address these problems. I was wrong. The top environmental problems are selfishness, greed, and apathy. And to deal with these, we need a cultural and spiritual transformation. And we scientists, we don't know how to do that. Hmm. I love that quote. It's so good. Because what I, what I hear is a, a top-tier environmental scientist who thought that science was going to be able to transform the world saying, I need some help. And I need help because I need a moral transformation. And I look at my community of devout Christians, uh, regardless of what region of this country they come from and what age category they f- they fall in and whether or not they're going to vote Democratic or Republican come mm-hmm. November. And I say, <laughs> brothers and sisters, let's stand up. Yeah. We can do that. We We know how to accomplish moral transformations. This is our gig. Um, Mm -hmm. And here we are, and we're ready to step up and fill the gap. And that would be my cry. Uh, We are required as the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve to respond to our God on this issue. That that's enough right there. Yeah. But on top of that, in the 21st century, if we as the current representatives of the kingdom are not willing to take a stand on this issue that affects our neighbors so profoundly, both locally and globally, how can we call ourselves the salt of the earth? How can we call ourselves the representatives of God in, in, in this current age for such a time as this? Yeah. Uh, that's the call that's being placed with us. Okay, one last thing real quick before I let you go, because I totally forgot to ask you about it. Could you tie in the connection between zoology and environmental degradation at this point? Yeah, I had actually, I checked in with Liz um, Harvey Roberts. Uh, She is the chief development officer for the Nature Conservancy. Uh, She had written a blurb for the book. I'd asked her, where is the Nature Conservancy on COVID-19? Have they released any statements? And she sent me a briefing on zoonotic diseases. And zoonotic diseases are diseases that emerge from an infectious contact between animals and human beings. And uh, Nature Conservancy has been working on this, and they have demonstrated that the industrial farming of uh, domestic livestock habitat destruction, um, and uh, also certain forms of um, habitat loss and climate change in negatively increase human contact with 
certain types of animal life and that these viruses actually can be therefore attributed to environmental degradation. So they, yeah, they are actually connecting COVID-19 to environmental degradation. And I didn't know if, if you know, but right now they're thinking that the Malayan pangolin, uh, yeah, uh, is probably one of the sources or the source of COVID-19. And it is a highly endangered creature. Uh, It is only available on the black market. It was illegally imported and sold in a wet market. Wow. That's fascinating that it all ties back. It all comes back together. Mm -hmm. Oh, Sandy, so good. Thank you for for spending time with us and sharing your heart. Again, this book... Uh, the subtitle is what scripture says about the environment and why it matters. And I think this is something that Christians have, you know, it's one of those things that there's a call to action too. Because once you hear this, you can't, I mean, you can say, eh, not interesting, not not for me, not my thing, but I think we'll be held accountable for that. And so my hope is that you keep pressing forward and, and sharing this and I'll keep doing the same. And uh, I, I just got your other book. And so once we read that, I'd love to have you back and talk, talk about the Epic of Eden next. But um, thank you so much for your time today. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you for giving a voice to this so important topic. Of course, I'm glad to do it. And uh, again, Dr. Sandy Richter, thank you so much. Uh, We'll be back again with another topic where we're trying to figure out where's truth and beauty and goodness in all of this. I still stand by the fact that it's a worthwhile pursuit. See you next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Heath in Pursuit podcast. We look forward to being back with you next week. For more information on the various works of Heath Hollandsby, please visit heathinpursuit.com.